We're going to read Psalm 16 responsively this morning, so please join me uh, in, the, with, in the bolded sections. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, we ask that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, work in us in such a way that we can both understand uh, what it is that the Bible is trying to communicate, but also that you would um, reshape our hearts, reshape uh, our desires reshape uh, uh, our inner um, architecture of our souls so that we would be able to walk out, walk in response to your word and walk in close relationship with you, the kind of relationship that Psalm 16 speaks of. Will you grant us to experience it truly in our lives? Um, and so that requires understanding, but it requires an inward work of grace. And so we ask for that work of grace by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take a seat. And um, it's helpful if you turn back to the uh, psalm, that Psalm 16 that we read responsibly. Um, I, I want to point something out about this psalm that is a little bit odd. Um, here's, here's what's odd. On the one hand, this psalm... Uh, is a cry for help. So just take a look at verse one. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Um, so in other words, it's saying, God, I need your help really, really bad. I need your protection. It's saying there's something scary out there that is coming and I need a shelter and I need a refuge. Help. You ever prayed help? It's a pretty common one. So the psalm is a cry for help, and it's written by the, uh, David. We don't know the specifics of the situation. Sometimes the psalms give us the situation. This one doesn't. Um, David's life, if you know David's life, he just experienced crisis after crisis after crisis, so it could have been a lot of things. But we do know that he composed this psalm when he was experiencing, see if you can identify, experiencing vulnerability. He was experiencing insecurity. He was experiencing danger. 
He was, uh, there was some kind of unmet desire. If for nothing else, he desired safety and it wasn't something that he had in his gift. So he needs help. But the odd thing is, on the one hand, this is a cry for help. But on the other hand, did you notice that it is a song of joy? In fact, the theme of confidence and joy and delight in God gets bigger as the psalm goes on. So just take a look at the last verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, that's one of the happiest verses in the whole Bible, right? It piles up happy words. Um, path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Now, do you see, do you see what's odd? It's a cry for help. But on the other hand, it is the happiest cry for help I know of. And I want to know how that works. Because somehow David is experiencing vulnerability and danger and insecurity and some kind of unmet desire. And yet that experience, which for me is just completely the bad kind of thing, but for him, somehow it becomes the context for experiencing confidence in God and joy in God and astonishing hope for the future. How does that work? Because I want some. In other words, how can vulnerability become a gateway to joy in God? That's the question. How can we be a people who on the one hand are able to cry out for help, but at the same time, we're able to say, verse nine, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. I don't know how all that goes together, except that this psalm gives us the path. So let's journey on it together. But in order to journey on it together, we're going to take a look at the opposite, how vulnerability leads uh, to to paths we don't want to go to. And the reason we're going to look at that is because David mentions it in verse four. Take a look at verse four. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Now what's going on there? Well, picture the scene. Uh, David is uh, about a thousand years before Jesus. And ancient Palestine uh, was, a, was a pretty pluralistic place. And what I mean by that is that there were a lot of religions running around. Uh, there were several different approaches to religion. And there were at least two big categories, at least for someone like David. There was on the one hand, uh, the God of Israel. And we're going to be talking about that approach in a few minutes. But on the other hand, there were various pagan deities on offer. And just focus on the pagan deities for a second. Imagine for a moment that you're a, you're a pagan farmer in ancient Palestine. Maybe you're a Canaanite, maybe you're an Israelite who's dabbling uh, on the other side of things. And, and imagine you're that. And I, I wake up in the morning, one morning, and I realize as a pagan in ancient Palestine that I'm in trouble. Uh, maybe I'm a farmer. 
And I realize uh, at 4 a.m., I realize, oh my goodness, if my crops fail, I'm going to starve. And I don't want to starve. So I'm going to do something about it. And the something I do about it is I go to, to the local shrine, the high place, and I make sacrifices and I pay the right fees and I do the right things and I cross my fingers and I hope that the weather god whose shrine I'm visiting is going to deliver on the agreed product and give me a good crop. Or maybe I'm worried about my enemies. I'm very concerned about security. And therefore, I wake up in the morning and I go to the local shrine of the maybe the war god or something like that. And I make all the right sacrifices and I do all the right things and I pay all the right fees and I cross my fingers and I hope that the god of war will deliver the agreed product and uh, I will defeat my enemies or be delivered from them. Or maybe I need fertility. I need my crop or my, my flocks to multiply or my family to multiply. So I go to the local fertility god and I pay the right fees and I do the right things and I cross my fingers and I hope that the fertility god comes through and delivers on the agreed product and, you know, lots of babies happen. Now, here's what I want you to see. Pagan religion, uh, in verse four, uh, those who run after another god, Pagan religion is always a way of dealing with vulnerability and insecurity and danger and need, but it deals with those problems always in a transactional way. It's like the market. There's no relationship with these gods. There's no mutual love. There's no mutual loyalty. There's no mutual promise. There's a market exchange. There's a shiching and I should get the thing that I'm wanting. You pay a fee, you get a product. And because it's a market transaction, uh, pagan religion is always primarily about self-interest. You're incentivized to kind of play the field, kind of uh, play the perhaps the deities off one another. You're incentivized to look out for yourself and your immediate tribe, not other people and certainly not strangers. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to leverage the gods that might be out there so that you can satisfy whatever you experience as the most urgent desire in the moment. All right. Go back to David in verse four. Because what David does is he looks at that system, which was very, which is a system with which he's familiar. And he says, I'm not going that path. It is a treadmill of torture. The sorrows of those who run after that path just multiply. Why? Why do the sorrows multiply? Why is it a treadmill of torture? Well, Part of it is that there's no guarantee that your needs are going to be met, even though you do all the right things and you pay all the right fees and you go through the rituals and so on and so forth. However, even if they are, even if you're delivered from your enemies or you get their crops do well or whatever, nevertheless, as soon as one need might be satisfied, 10 more are always cropping up. And therefore, you're always having to, you, it's a cycle. 
you may get one need met, maybe not, but you've got a bunch more and therefore you've got to deal with all of these and therefore you've got to go on to the next thing. You've got to grab the next lever. You've got to uh, do the next ritual. You got to pay the next fee and therefore your whole life becomes a system of being driven along with these sense of underlying insecurity or unmet desires and you're driven along by those raging needs. It's exhausting and it's torturous. And David says, no, 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 I'm not going that way. But now, before we go back to the reading, Emmanuel, I want to know, does any of this sound familiar? We're not pagans, but we are consumerists. And as consumerists, we are hyper aware of unmet desire. Am I wrong? And for most of us, we're wealthy enough that our unmet desire is not for food or for shelter or even usually for security, though sometimes perhaps it is. But for most of us, our unmet desire that drives us along, that makes us somewhat desperate, that tortures and exhausts us has to do with existential questions like, who am I and how can I be happy and how can I make the not happy go away? And that can lead us into something very similar to a kind of pagan consumerism because we end up running around trying to find the transaction that's going to change my situation, the lever I can pull that'll tell me I'm okay, that will tell me who I am, that will make me happy. But just like the old treadmill, it exhausts us but doesn't fulfill us and we're left with nagging unmet desire. All right, everybody, take a deep breath. All right, it's going to get happier. Go back to the psalm. Verse 2 of the psalm. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, Emmanuel, embedded in that verse is a completely different approach to God. But in order to grasp it, you need to understand a backstory. Here's the backstory. Hundreds of years before David, uh, God introduced himself to Israel when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. You may know this story, um, but there was a particular moment in Exodus chapter six where Israel was experiencing a vulnerability at a fever pitch. Here's what happened. Moses had come back and he had initially said, hey, Pharaoh, you got to let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And not only did Pharaoh say no, he retaliated against Israel. And what he did is he said, Israel, you know, they're still enslaved. He says, listen, I'm going to require more productivity. You got to make more bricks, but I'm going to cut the means of production. I'm going to cut off your supply lines. You got to make more bricks, but I'm not going to give you straw. And Israel knew that this was a terrible power play because uh, Pharaoh was setting them up to have an excuse uh, to come in and, and, and oppress them even worse. So Israel is experiencing vulnerability at a fever pitch. The most powerful person in their lives, Pharaoh, was coming after him more than he normally comes after them. So they are stressing out to no end. And that's the moment, Emmanuel, Exodus chapter 6, when God proposes. He doesn't propose marriage, but actually something better. He proposes a covenant with Israel. 
I'm paraphrasing. You can read about it in Exodus chapter six, but he says this. He says, Israel, I'm going to save you and I'm going to rescue you. Don't worry. And I'm going to give you all that you need, Israel. But here's the thing. I don't want to just give you things. It's as if God says to Israel, I want to give you me. I want you and I to enter into a covenant, Israel. And in that covenant, I'm going to be your God, and I'm always going to be your God. And you're going to be my people, and you're always going to be my people. And you're not going to pay for this relationship because it's a relationship beyond all price. But I'm going to give it to you as a gift, Israel. Not because you deserve it, but because I'm that kind of a God. And you're going to respond to Israel by giving yourself to me as a gift. And our relationship, Israel, is not going to be on, based on transaction. It's going to be different from any relationship you've ever known before. It's going to be based upon promise and loyalty and love and trust. I'm going to give you everything you need, Israel. Don't be afraid. But mostly, Israel, it's as if God says, I'm going to give you me. Will you consent to this covenant, Israel? Now, keep that in mind and go back to verse 2. Because verse 2, the words David uses, and I don't have time to explain all this, what this is, is David saying yes to the covenant. David is saying, Lord, in the midst of Israel's vulnerability, you offered them a covenant. Well, I'm in need now. And I consent to that covenant you offered Israel. I consent myself. You are my Lord. No one else is. You are my single source for all the goodness of this life. And what I want you to see is that this relationship, it's not just about transaction. In fact, it's not. It's about relationship. And that relational context transforms everything. Let me illustrate. Look at verse 6. David says, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, it may not sound like it on the surface, but that's about real estate. Um, David is saying, the property lines for my property are great. I've got a great ranch. Um, he's speaking about wealth. He's speaking about do doing well financially. But can you see that he's not boasting? He's giving thanks. And then let's add something. Look at the verse just before. Look at verse five. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, do you hear the affection in that verse? So David's happy about his financial provision, but he knows it's a gift. And the gift points him to the giver. And as David looks at the giver, his heart swells with gratitude. And then that gratitude turns into love. And Emmanuel, that's how covenant works. God gives himself to us in love. We consent to that gift. And then God supplies all that, you, all that we need. And as we receive those gifts, they're great, every last one of them. But yet the best thing about the gifts God gives us is that they point to the giver. And as we go look from the gift to the giver, we're entered into an intimacy with God himself. And so that this is why Jesus can say, don't worry, but seek first the kingdom of God and all things will be added unto you. 
It's in that relationship that the deepest desires of our soul are fulfilled. So pagan religion is, and all kinds of pagan consumerism, it's always about transaction. It focuses on self-interest. It always leads us deeper into self and therefore it amplifies selfish desire. But covenant with God does the opposite. It's about relationship and God leads us from our need to his gift, from his gift to himself. And the result is we are satisfied with the intimacy for which we were made. And that explains David's joy. Look at verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Did he forget about the thing that he's afraid of? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David is not obsessed with David. He's obsessed with his Lord. And everything that has been eclipsed by this thankful love for God. And and that's why he can be so joyful, even when he's asking for help. It also explains something else. Um, It explains why David is also filled with love for other people. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Verse 3 just kind of sits there, kind of floats out there. But remember the two great commandments? Love who? Love, oh, come on. Love the Lord, good, good church. And then love our neighbors as ourselves. Well done, well done. The answers were already in the service, just so you know. Um, but very well done. Okay, but th- th- it always works that way. These things go together. David is captivated in a covenant of love with God. That covenant is leading him out of himself towards God. Um, and, and therefore, as, as he's led out of himself, he's freed to love other people. The more transactional your life is, the more other people will be seen as somebody either to compete against or to use. The more covenantal your life is, the more intimate you are with the Lord, the more trusting you are of him, the more free you will be able to be not to use or compete with other people, but to love them and to love them sacrificially. And then David kind of gets carried away. Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the grave. It's a place where dead people go. Or let your holy one see corruption. Now, this is when it kind of seems like he gets carried away, right? Because David's so captivated by the Lord. And he's so confident in the Lord's provision that he even looks at death and he says, yeah, it's not going to touch me. Except it does. And he dies. And he's buried. And he decays. Maybe it's just hyperbole. Except, did you know that the very first Christian sermon ever preached hundreds of years later uses that verse? Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching the first Christian sermon ever, and he references this verse. And he actually points out, Team, David died. David decayed. What's it talking about? And Peter says, actually, remarkably, David in that moment was prophesying about Jesus. Jesus, humanly descended from David, but at the same time, Jesus is God in person. And Jesus comes and he voluntarily becomes vulnerable. 
and he enters into our experience of extreme vulnerability. And he went all the way. He went to the cross and he died a full death. But then his father raised him from death and fulfilled that verse. And then God fulfilled his promise and he didn't allow Jesus to decay, but he gave him a new body and a renewed body. And what does all this mean for us? Here's what it means. When Jesus died and then rose again, he was establishing and confirming, Emmanuel, don't miss it. He was confirming a new covenant. Jesus was inaugurating a new covenant of love for anyone who will consent to it. And in this new covenant of love, God gives himself fully and unreservedly and beyond all expectations in the person of Jesus. Jesus gave himself for you without reservation when he hung upon the cross. And then what he asks of us is that we would consent to his self-giving by giving ourselves to him in trust. And then Jesus brings us into a new intimacy with his father. And one of God's many promises is that this new relationship is so robust that even death's not going to kill it. That God will, just as he rose Jesus from the dead, he will raise us from the dead as well. And I want you to stop and internalize that, Emmanuel, because here's what it means. We're all going to experience vulnerability. You're experiencing it now. You're going to experience it in the future. But the day will come when it will go extreme. Friends, we're all going to die. And when we die, that will be the most severe experience of vulnerability we will ever face. And it's in all of our futures. But if you belong to Christ in covenant, then even that most severe vulnerability will become the gateway and the moment when God will display the full extent of his power and his love, and he will reverse your death. And for all eternity, you will look back to that moment when God raised you from the dead and you will say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and power and glory and might. And you will never get tired of rejoicing in God's sufficiency in the midst of your vulnerability. And if that's true, it means that even death becomes the form of God's love. Emmanuel, what that means for you today is that it fills us with courage to face the smaller but very real vulnerabilities we're all going through. How can vulnerability become a gateway to joy in God? Well, when God has given himself to you in covenant, and when Jesus has given all that he is for you, he's promised to care for you even in death and beyond death then all of your present vulnerabilities become opportunities to discover the beauty of God who has loved you beyond your imagining and who is calling forth trust from your soul. So Emmanuel, let me end with just a couple implications. This means pursue intimacy in the midst of your experience of vulnerability. Like I said, everybody's going to experience danger, insecurity, unmet desire, need, distress. When those times come and when they become acute, you're going to be tempted to satisfy those needs, uh, desires, fears. You're going to be tempted to satisfy them outside covenant with God. That's called sin. It leads to the multiplication of sorrow. Instead... Use Psalm 16 to bring that vulnerability to God and to ask him for help 
while at the same time consenting to his covenant. And that's how you fight temptation. Number two, enjoy God in all of his gifts. Um, We have all received great gifts from God, and God will continue to supply your needs. Notice them. Enjoy them. But go from the gift to the giver, and that's where the sweetness will be found. And finally, express hope in a readiness to sacrifice. Uh, David felt vulnerable and he needed protection. Jesus felt vulnerable. He needed resurrection. Both trusted God and that looked like walking with him into sacrifice. And that's what hoping God always looks like. There will be times when obeying God will mean that vulnerability will temporarily increase. There will be times when following God will mean that insecurity will in temporarily increase. Sometimes unmet desire will temporarily increase. And in those moments, obey God anyway, because of all that he is and all that he has given for you. And do it with your eyes locked on Jesus Christ. Look at the cross, look at the resurrection. That is the pattern of your future. Take hope there and understand that your story as you walk in covenant with God will become an echo of the cross and the resurrection and that great and deeper and eternal joy awaits you and take hope. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.